This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Useem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm Anne Greenhall, your host, and I'm here tonight with my dear colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Useem and Jeff Klein. Mike and Jeff, how are you tonight? I am great. <laughs> okay. I'm, uh, I'm better than Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do I get a follow-up? Yes, you yeah, do, okay. Mike. Yeah, I'm, I am really, really good. Uh-huh. Really? Plus one. <laughs> Plus one. <laughs> it's so good to have the band back. <laughs> but, Jeff, we don't compare to Anne's condition. Oh. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, I'm not even trying. We're not, not even really trying. Gonna, not even right. trying. Right, right. because we, I'm yeah. in the captain's chair tonight, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I can cut you off yeah. <laughs> instead. Oh, we should install a mute button. <laughs> like, what if you – does that show on ESPN where they, like, mute oh, – they yeah. mute people when they don't, yeah. like, you know – we could, we could have a mute function here, right? And I would, like, just keep talking, and I think I was on. Yeah. You'd be muting Muting me the whole... right. Is that actually what's happened for the last four years? No, no, no. Is there no, a We haven't heard much from you lately. What's going on? But I think the mute button and its ownership defines the host of the evening. Exactly. So whoever's got it. Right, exactly. So, you know, we've got a really wonderful show tonight, and actually... Uh, Jeff, I think this show is really in particular up your alley because we're going to be talking about learning and speaking to the author. And I, I obviously have much <laughs> to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mike's chuckling. I, I didn't say it, Jeff. <laughs> but I was completely agreeing so with maybe, maybe I'll be inspired yeah. to yeah. finally reach yeah. my potential. Exactly. And that was oh. just so good. <laughs> so good. I and I'm sure our listeners know that I am yeah. the straight person. In this uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. So the author is Bradley Stats, and he's written a book called Never Stop Learning. Stay relevant. Reinvent yourself and thrive. So I know we usually do just a little bit of uh, banter before we bring our guest on, and I know we've started a little bit of that banter, but one of his tips is learning from failure. <laughs> so, Jeff, try Jeff. that one on. <laughs> I, fa- I fail was, frequently yeah. and struggle to learn. Yeah, struggle, struggle to learn from the failures, but um, I rarely fail the same way. That's impressive. How about that? That's very right. good. I, I no, that is multifaceted in my failing. <laughs> so st- no. Sticking up for yourself. There. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, think of the different ways you could fail. You could fail strategically. You could fail tactically. You could fail in the short term or the long term. Remorsefully. I've got, yeah, I've got them covered here. <laughs> sort of comically, yeah. publicly, yeah. privately. <laughs> You're kind of the complete guy. Yeah. You know, and uh, here I am. But Just you know, keep rolling forward. I think there's some very good news embedded in your answer. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm, I'm listening. Am I muted again? <laughs> no, you're, you're live. I think right. the good news is that you learn from each of those failures. I think I do. I think I do. I'm not always sure how well I implement what I've learned, but uh, deeply reflective. So, yes, I do learn something. Okay, how about in good sportsmanship, <laughs> mm-hmm. I will give an illustration of one of my failures at work. I thought you were going to say, oh. I'll give you an illustration of <laughs> one of the times <laughs> I thought you should have learned something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, Picking Jeff. up on your failures. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'll give you an All example right. of one of mine, just okay. in good sportsmanship. And this goes back a little while, but I remember um, I had an opportunity because other people had left in the division I was in at the time, the undergraduate division, to take on additional responsibility. And I did take on that additional responsibi- responsibility. And upon, you know, in, in the accepting of that responsibility, I was also assured that other staff members would step up and, you know, help with those pieces. Well, for various reasons, they were unable to step up. And I found myself essentially wearing three hats, mm-hmm. <laughs> three jobs. <laughs> and uh, one of the jobs was uh, overseeing the undergraduate leadership program, which if I look back, I did well because... I knew it so well. I was I had deep knowledge, and so I, I would give myself an A in that. That's good. Awesome. The other piece was overseeing a program that's no longer here. It's called the Evening School, and it was a uh, a little bit of a stepchild of in the division. And because I have a soft heart, I took the Evening School <laughs> under my wing. And although I didn't know it well, and it was fraught with all sorts of you know challenges and opportunities, I would say maybe at best an A minus. There was another piece, an advising piece, which I knew the least well, but stepped into and lacked some of the technical expertise in order to really excel at that at that job. I did okay, <laughs> but you know, letter grade, not great. I you mean, know, maybe a, I mean, I'd, a B, I would say. You know, a B. It was okay. Great inflation. <laughs> great inflation, <laughs> right? <laughs> but the moral to the story is, you know, good to step up and take responsibility, but also, you know, recognize that sometimes you just can't do it all just because you may have heart and desire to do it all, but sometimes you just cannot do it all. So I've found myself on occasion in similar situations, but I've been a little bit wiser <laughs> about recognizing what the boundaries are or, ma- or managing expectations. Mm-hmm. That's good. Congratulations. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> like, look at that. She, and, she and learned something. What? There it I is. Thought, I, I thought she was going to resign from the show at the end of that. No. <laughs> All right. I think we had a good enough time here at the opening. <laughs> Should we bring on our guest? I think it's a, I think it's the proper time. So, please, I would love to bring our guest on, and he is Bradley Stats, the author of Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. Bradley, welcome to the show. Great, and thanks so much. Uh, excited to be uh, with you all. Uh, sounds like uh, you and uh, Jeff and Mike know how to have a, have a good time. <laughs> well, very good. Well, we're really delighted to have you. And let me just say a little bit of uh, about you, and then uh, we're going to just dive in and start talking about your book. You're a, an associate professor of operations at the University of North Carolina, and you've uh, done extensive research on individuals, teams, organizations, and your interest is really on learning, on learning how we can improve operational performance to build a competitive advantage. You're interested in integrating work and operations management and organizational behavior to clarify how and under what conditions individuals, teams, and organizations can learn at their best. So I, maybe just for an opening question, how did you get so interested in learning? Sure. I mean, I, I think perhaps a kindred spirit with Jeff and that, uh, you know, struggling through so much of it myself um, and trying to make sense of it. Uh, you know, before coming into academia, I'd worked in industry, worked in investment banking, venture capital, strategic planning, and seen kind of individual organizations that had what I thought were very similar resources, but vastly different performance 
Um, and as I kind of tried to understand why, I came to appreciate it was something around learning, um, and, but I didn't really know what. Um, and it didn't make sense to me that you know, we could identify these processes that we should follow. Failure is one you were talking about already. Right. You know, I think most listeners know, hey, failure to some extent is good for us as it, mm-hmm. as it pushes learning. Um, and yet it's so hard for us to do these things. And so kind of much of my research started as me search of things, you know, I can't do well. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that? Uh, uh, and then kind of broadened out with time uh, to come to appreciate that, you know, when it, when it comes to learning, we, we often are the problem ourselves. We're our own worst enemy. Could you say a little bit more about, you know, why we are our own worst enemy? And so, and failure might be a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think it does get around, you know, there are these two pieces. um, And that's where I've been spending my time. There's the processes, you know, what should we do? This is kind of where the operations comes in. We can map out, you know, a flow of the steps to take. Um, but then there's the behavior. Um, hmm. And so let's let's take failure as a good example that, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with organizations and, and everyone talks about it, at least at a high level, knowing, you know, that, that it's not when we talk about failure, hey, we want to, you know, mess things up intentionally. It's that if we want to innovate, um, if we want to try new things, then, you know, not all of them are going to be successful. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that's really hard for us to grapple with um, that, uh, you know, the challenge challenge becomes, you know, failing is embarrassing, Um, that, you know, often we won't even take the chance in the first place because we're so afraid of that negative outcome. And so, you know, it ends up, you know, paralyzing us. The second piece as we think about failure um, is even when we take the risk, even when something goes wrong, you know, there's lots of great kind of research and stories showing how, you know, we won't admit that it really went wrong instead of, Hmm. you know, kind of you were telling or you know Jeff's example um, that we'll try to deny it you know your advising piece or you know you'll, you'll say no no that's what we wanted all along that's what it's supposed to be instead of taking that critical eye and you know, okay look some things went well some things didn't what can we build upon and so in trying to kind of protect our self-image uh, we miss that opportunity to learn all right that's uh, yeah I really appreciate that and in your book I know you gave a nice example of uh, when we, I think maybe even used your sons as, as an opening illustration so that when we fail to do something right, we might look outside. You know, it's not about us. It's about yep. <laughs> the situation or luck or misluck or lack of luck rather than stepping up and taking responsibility for our part in, in the failure. Yeah, absolutely. So we did some research looking at cardiac surgeons uh, and, uh, you know, trying to understand when do they learn. Uh, And in that case, failure is unfortunately a patient dying. And it's quite reasonable that sometimes, you know, a patient is so sick that they're just not going to make it. Um, What's interesting is what you were saying, that as we try to evaluate ourselves, we can look at something and and admit, yep, it was my responsibility. Uh, We can look at something and, you know, I was unlucky. There was nobody could have pulled this off. And what we see is that, you know, the cardiac surgeons on average, they don't learn from their own mistakes. Mm. They actually end up doing a little bit worse. Now, what's interesting and somewhat encouraging is that we are able to learn from other people's mistakes because Mm. we're likely to, you know, blame them for the action. um, But then we can make those connections of, you know, what we can Mm. do better. That's great. Jeff. Uh, Brad, it's uh, great to have you on the show, and I am a big fan of your work, so Anne is, Anne is right. We are uh, <laughs> certainly kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tell me a, a little bit, you know, when, when we talk about failure, I mean, your your example of the, the cardiac surgeon, um, failure's kind of clear in terms of outcomes, right? I mean, we have yep. a, a patient who's alive or a patient who's not alive in that case. Yep. Um, 
when you look at at you know individuals or teams within organizations, um, how how clear is the definition of success or failure mm-hmm. to them? That's a good question. I think that's a great point, um, and I think it often is not very clear, mm-hmm. right? And and this is part of the challenge. You know, if we if we haven't identified beforehand, you know, what we expect to happen, then after the fact, as we look at it. Um, what we see is that when things go wrong, people often will either rationalize, oh, well, think how much worse it would have been if we hadn't done this, um, or they'll actually change. There's some nice research showing people changing the goals, right? Mm-hmm. That originally something was meant to you know, improve profitability, and when that's not happening, oh, well, actually it was meant to increase market share. That's what we're doing here. Profitability is not key. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that haziness um, kind of mm-hmm. gives us a wiggle room um, that unfortunately is often kind Counterproductive. Hmm. That, that's interesting. And even as you were describing that, like a shift from profitability to market share, I know this is not exactly um, how the, the the startup entrepreneur would describe it, but it it does remind me of the notion of pivoting, right? Kind hmm. of going going in this direction for a while, um, struggling, failing, reading market signals, whatever that is, and then yep. and then heading in a different direction. And so it, it's interesting. There's one part of me that says, all right, well, that's this kind of continual learning process where you're constantly seeking feedback about the decisions you're making or the direction you're heading and making kind of real-time adjustments. Um, but I, I do wonder what effect that kind of a strategy has on the individual or the organization's ability to learn. No, and, and I, I mean, I think your point is a sound one, and, and this is is part of the challenge of doing it for all of us in practice, that – you know, we do have to change course, whether we're at a startup, whether we're kind of in a, in a big company. Uh, the same strategy for year after year we know isn't going to work. Um, and then the question becomes kind of why are we changing course? Mm-hmm. I mean, can, we be, can we be honest with ourselves? I mean, I love um, kind of the well-used Richard Kleinman quote, uh, you know, talking about the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, if you're changing course, I mean, recognize, hey, it's because it didn't go well over here. This is why we think it didn't go well. We probably don't know for sure. Um, and why this shift to market share is a good idea. Not, you know, oh, yeah, market share is what we wanted all along. Uh, and we're, you know, we're staying the course. Mm-hmm. I can remember we've had, um, you know, a, a couple different leaders on the show over the the past couple of years. Um, Alex Gorski comes to mind from Johnson & Johnson, for instance, who they actually talk about sort of cultivating, not failures, right? So it's not like sure. I'm going to put you in a situation where you're de- I'm deliberately going to fail, but I am. He talks about how do we how do we as leaders create the kinds of experiences where where failure is perfectly okay, um, yep. as opposed to the you know kind of higher stakes situations where failure mm-hmm. is going to have more of an impact on the organization? Um, what have you What have you seen about the ways in which you know leaders can create those kinds of experiences uh, in organizations? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's a great uh, it's a great point, and and I completely agree. I mean, I think there are probably two things I would highlight. Um, one is cultivating you know an openness to discussing it. Um, I think that you know many times when you're kind of junior or mid level in the organization, you look up and you get such a sanitized view of what's going on that you know when you see the chairman, see the CEO, um, you never know what they've done wrong, right? You just get uh, the success stories coming at you, and so you think, well, that's what I have to do too. It's been 
interesting for me working with companies, you know, when that senior leader comes in and starts to tell stories. Let me tell you about what I did with when I was at your stage, um, creating you know, kind of this, this culture of openness. Um, one of my favorite uh, kind of CEO stories I talk about um, in the book is from a gentleman named Tom Crosby, uh, who is uh, CEO of a, of a small fast food restaurant chain uh, in the southeast. Um, and, you know, kind of good examples of failure, but one of the things he talks about is when he makes a mistake, he gets out in front of it, he shares it with people, shares how this is part of his education, um, and then makes the point to them that, look, as long as it's legally, morally, ethically correct, you're allowed to make one mistake of any kind, you know, just make sure that your next mistake is something new. Um, so kind of getting to, to your yeah. point, right? Yes, you were yeah. joking about, you know, mm-hmm. these are all different mistakes you've made. That's great. <laughs> as long as they're, you know, in the direction, hopefully, of, uh, of trying to accomplish more. Um, I think the second point that great leaders do in, you know, kind of establishing this is, is creating kind of the space to play in, so to speak, mm-hmm. of what sort of risks are acceptable, right? I mean, if, if you're sitting in the nuclear power control room, um, then, you know, experimenting with, well, what happens if I start, you know, yanking the control rods out um, is, is not a good idea, right? That's certainly not, you know, in your discretion. On the other hand, you know, if you've got a new product development team, you know, telling them that, you know, failure is not an option, you can't try anything new that won't work, uh, you know, is going to make sure that all they do is marginally tweak where you are right now. And so, you know, I've taken two extreme sides there, uh, but helping people understand, you know, what sort of risks are acceptable in the moment and overall in your career. Very good. Well, Brad, I want to get Mike's voice in here, but before I do, let me remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here in studio with my dear colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Useem and Jeff Klein. Brad, great to have you on the program and picking up on the, the terrain, the really interesting terrain we're on. I'm reminded of, a, of an academic colleague who wrote some time ago that we ought to put out, uh, especially w- uh, maybe directed at the younger faculty and graduate students, our annual underperformance report. Mm, yeah. So we, <laughs> we put out our performance. It looks great. These publications, this teaching, these achievements – uh, but what's left off that resume and certainly that annual uh, summing up are the places where we have uh, failed abysmally to say the obvious, but even uh, some lesser mistakes as well. So, Brad, a first question is uh, I'm in complete agreement with you that we need to disclose more actively where things did not go well. We admire a, a company leader who can walk on stage and say, look, here are the four things we just didn't do well and I'm responsible and yet it happens, obviously, very infrequently. So what do you think would help people become more able to disclose failure? Yep. Now, it's, it's a great question, Mike, and uh, great to talk to you. Uh, I mean, so we see some organizations that actually do that. I mean, I love uh, Engineers Without Borders uh, is an example of an organization that publishes a failure report each year. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting at, yes, they accomplish mm-hmm. amazing things, and, you know, it's great what people are doing, uh, but sharing the mistakes that they're making. Um, and so creating, you know, kind of that rhythm of, you know, we're going to talk about it. It's we're trying new things that aren't going to work. Um, one, of, one of your colleagues there, Martin Haas, talks about uh, kind of the need to track uh, individuals' failure rates. And actually, when you do that, 
making it clear that you know if your failure rate isn't high enough, where high is going to vary certainly by context, um, then that's a problem too, right? If you're succeeding at everything you're doing, um, then you know almost for sure you're just not pushing the borders far enough. And so I think what's interesting is that we sort of can turn kind of measurement and storytelling on its head. And so instead of just the successes, just look you know at my wonderful hit rate here, you know turn it around and here are the things that are going wrong and what I learned from them. Um, and here, you know, back to that junior faculty example, sharing with folks, let me tell you about my worst story uh, of the papers I submitted that got you know, completely obliterated mm-hmm. uh, and yet you know, persevering and how they ended up somewhere, hopefully successfully. Brad, I'm, I'm going to add one more example to yours, and I think Please. it's really great to hear your examples of uh, organizations or companies or individuals mm-hmm. that have been very active at that because it helps us understand what we might do as well. Uh, the premier association of mountaineers in the United States is called the American Alpine Club, and they annually publish two volumes. One volume is of new ascents made, dramatic rescues achieved, uh, amazing traverses that people might have uh, taken in Patagonia. But they also put out another volume called Accidents in Mountaineering. Wow. And in that is a unflinching look at what went wrong so that in the future, hopefully those shortcomings will not reappear. So I think, uh, Brad, uh, I'm with you all the way. Uh, With with these kinds of examples, I think we can begin to appreciate there are ways to become better at helping people understand that failure is okay. That said, Brad, I'm going to just shift your ground a little bit and ask you to help us think through what we might in academic life call boundary conditions. That is, Confessing failure or learning from failure is probably more feasible in some kinds of cultures and organizations than others. So what would you single out as maybe a culture or even maybe by way of illustration organization where failure is celebrated, where it's understood, where it's appreciated? Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think, um, you know, you're getting at a huge point here that, you know, individual leaders can certainly set the condition, but the organization can't too. And, you know, as we think about what sort of organization is going to handle this, I mean, it, it's one that to use uh, the term from Amy Edmondson, uh, that has created a psychologically safe environment. Um, this idea of it's okay to take risks. And in fact, not just it's okay, you know, it's necessary for us to be successful in a broader way. Um, I think, you know, we can step back and, and look at a number of different ones that have done that. I mean, I, I love some of the stories out of, you know, Pixar as an example, um, and, you know, what Ed Catmull was able to, to set up there. Um, and he talks a lot about, you know, look, if you're in a truly creative process, then you have to recognize that these sorts of failures or mistakes, um, that, you know, it's not that that's a problem, it's that that's just a natural part. Um, and if they're not occurring, um, then, you know, we're never going to make a great movie. Um, you know, certainly Google um, is a classic example here um, with uh, their project Aristotle from uh, from a few years ago now, looking at team performance, kind of what drove team performance. Um, and it was back to this real, this culture of, of psychological safety, that it wasn't, you know, the raw intellect where people had gone to school, but leaders that were setting up an environment um, where it was okay to innovate um, and to push things. Um, the last example I'll use is the one uh, y'all mentioned earlier with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, J&J is a great case where with the credo, um, it's very clear you know, the things that you have to do or can't do, as the case may be, uh, but also an appreciation that you know, that helps define the space, um, creating an opportunity then to, you know, to, to innovate. 
Brad, we've talked a lot about uh, failure, and I know that in your book you talk about eight <coughs> essential elements uh, that are important to becoming a dynamic learner. How about just, and we've touched on this, Jeff touched on a little bit, but a little bit more on process rather than mm-hmm. outcome. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as a um, you know operations professor, this is near and dear to my heart. <laughs> uh, I'm certainly you know, appreciative yeah. of of the process. Um, and you know, talking to, to folks there in Philadelphia, uh, I would imagine it's near and dear to yours as well mm-hmm. with the with the 76ers uh, and their approach <laughs> to, to trust the process. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I think what what that idea is getting at um, is that unfortunately, you know, we end up looking at the actions we've taken, um, and all too often. And we look at that outcome, right? Mm-hmm. What, what occurred at the end? And if it was a good outcome, it means the steps I took were good. And if it was a bad outcome, it means the steps I took were bad um, and kind of full stop. And we move on from there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, life doesn't work that way, kind of in two dimensions. One is, you know, things take time. So back to the 76ers, if your team is kind of a dumpster fire, then, you know, you need to rebuild it. Uh, and it may take a number of years of things going poorly before you come out the other side, like the Sixers did this year. Um, the other element is variance, that you could you know, run a great sales process, do everything right. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it, it just doesn't work out for you. You know, they didn't want to buy the nephew of the owner or kind of worked at the other firm, whatever it might be. Um, and so that kind of focus obsession really about the outcome mm-hmm. um, means we miss all of that beautiful detail in between um, where we can really understand, you know, what, what could have happened and what should happen next time. Um, and so, you know, I think what we see is, is great learners, whether it's in sports uh, like the Sixers, uh, whether there's a, a great example I love of the orthopedic surgeon um, who's actually in your area too, um, Robert Booth uh, there in Philly, uh, with that focus on the process, knowing that in the long run, um, if we can kind of look at the details that get us from A to B, um, that that's how we learn. That's how we have a longer-term success. Oh, and very good. Go ahead, I, Jeff. I just want to be clear that um, I think you're <laughs> suggesting that LeBron failed by choosing to go to L.A. <laughs> I, I think I think that was the underlying yeah, message yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard that's that. That's what I take away as well. All right. and, <laughs> yeah. and if you could just be um, maybe a little more judicious in the use of the word dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're still a little sensitive here, too. I thought enough time had Just kidding. Just, just kidding. kidding. <laughs> Championship, you know, everything seems to be I know. I, well, it's, it's, it's on the upswing. <laughs> it is. So how about on that note, we're going to take a <laughs> short break, and we're going to come back afterwards and talk more with you, Brad Stats, about your book, Never Stop Learning, and pick up on more of those elements to learning and, I think, creating a learning organization. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem, and you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. We will be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem. And tonight we have the great pleasure of speaking with Brad Statz, Associate Professor of Operations at the University of North Carolina. And we're talking about his book, Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. Now, Brad, just so you know, before uh, during the break, we, uh, if I may say, we've come up with a, a great new addition to the C-suite, and that's CFO, Chief Failure Officer. 
Uh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> it definitely would help, it, at least if one of the C-suite were to take on that role. <laughs> We've nominated and, Jeff. Yeah, and they appointed me, Brad. <laughs> Yeah, we took a quick vote here, Brad. And it was the way uh, it came out. It was kind of unanimous. Yeah, they made yeah. it sound like a yeah. success, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. but we know otherwise. <laughs> and we were also very honest. I, I might say too that we recognize the value of uh, failing, failing fast, failing often, and learning, but that it's uh, very difficult to do. Uh, partly because of our own foibles, but also because of the culture culture that we find ourselves in. But Jeff, I know you had another question that takes us away from failure and processes to learning from others. Was that it? Yeah. Brad, I, I was really drawn to your chapter uh, that, that talked about the role that other people play in, in our learning process. And I you know, one of the things I do here at the university is I'll run, um, you know, group dynamics courses or uh, simulation-based courses, things that are highly experiential. And a mentor of mine um, would often say as we were framing, uh, you know, framing the experience that we were going to have, that not only were you there to learn for yourself, but you were there to learn on behalf of others and that there were other people in the room um, who were going to make choices and do things so that you could learn from their experiences as well. And so I, uh, I'd, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about how you think about the role um, that other people play in supporting an individual's learning process. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a fantastic point uh, that, you know, when we talk individual learning, um, it's quite reasonable and appropriate that we focus on the individual. But, but of course, as you just highlighted, you know, other people um, play such a critical role. Um, and I think some of it is, is obvious um, in that, you know, other people have important information. Um, and so as we interact with them, uh, you will have a chance to learn that information, uh, and of course, you know, that's uh, you know that's a big deal. Um, but but there's a lot more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, I think that there's kind of two pieces. I mean, one is that that interpersonal one that you were highlighting of of how those processes actually work. Uh, so a bunch of my research um, has looked at you know those sorts of group dynamics and, and come to appreciate just the value we get you know from familiarity as we work with the same people. Um, we're able to you know, communicate more easily with them. We're able to trust them uh, more easily. Uh, we can learn what they know and where, you know, we find knowledge within that broader team. And so, you know, this kind of point that familiarity doesn't breed contempt, mm-hmm. um, it often actually breeds learning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when you're thinking about a learning process, it does it does it feel like an individual process? I mean, is, mm-hmm. is that the starting point? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think for me, it tends to be that's the starting point, uh-huh. um, and, and I appreciate it's kind of an egocentric view of the world, um, but it quickly has to, to broaden out to both you know the team as well as kind of the system that one is a part of. Right, right, and I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think the way that we're. Um... When, when we think about learning, especially here in the West, we think um, pretty quickly about the school system, right? And the school yep. system, though, it has moved more towards group-based activities and dialogue and things like that. I mean, there's a, there's a pretty traditional, um, yeah, I guess what Freire would call the, the banking system of education. We'll give you a bunch of information, and then we'll give you a test at the end to see what you've, quote-unquote, learned as, as a result of that. Um, how do you think that's different for um, for organizations, right? Where it's it, it's 
it's not a school system. Now you're in a, a work function, a corporate function. What form does learning seem to take there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right about the challenge kind of in the broader West. Um, and I think often it's the challenge in, in organizations is that, you know, we look at um, kind of in the same way um, from an HR, from a corporate learning standpoint, um, you know, we look at just the individual. Um, when, you know, as you're highlighting, whether it's, you know, kind of, you know, kids schools, whether it's at our universities, we're, we're starting to do a better job to shift out of that, um, to think about, you know, the group as learning together, mm-hmm. um, that they need to learn really not only the skills, but the behaviors are so embedded in the interactions mm-hmm. um, that we actually have to bring people together to do that. Um, you know, again, so they learn, you know, not only how to do something, but how to work with one another. In fact, let me jump in just for a second. Brad, uh, you also talk about how we've shifted from a knowledge economy to a learning economy. And maybe maybe this is a a good point to just, you know, say a little bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I I think it's an appreciation of just, you know, kind of the ongoing changes that are taking place um, that, you know, if we think about our success over any sort of extended period of time, and it doesn't have to be very long, um, you know, what we know is going to grow stale. Um, so it's not, you know, great, let's uh, get a beachhead of some sort of unique defendable position uh, in a marketplace. And, you know, strategically, we have these great resources that we'll hold on to uh, and, you know, be able to you know profit from them. But instead, you know, as soon as we've made decisions, others are going along with it. Uh, and so we have to alter and change. And, you know, whether that's from, you know, just the rapid increase of knowledge, whether it's thinking about things like, you know, automation, um, analytics, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, digitalization, lots and lots of these factors are just increasing this rate of change. And so I think it all kind of ties together to say, you know, our success as an organization, and in the same way, then bring it back to the person, our success as an individual, um, you know, in this moment, it's about what I know, but in the you know, subsequent moments, it's how I transform that knowledge, how I learn so I can change with it. And that learning, you know, is both, you know, kind of pieces of tasks, some I know now, some that are being invented here in the near future, um, but also how we successfully work with others. Because I think a key point, you know, that, my, that, that we're getting at here um, is um, that, you know, we have individual pieces, uh, but we become so specialized often uh, that none of us can do the whole job by ourselves, right? And so it's back to we have to bring that group together um, such that the dynamics really determine our success or failure. Brad, picking up on that and, and hearing the thrust of your argument, which is really interesting, which is to say, um, I'll put my words on it, watch what's happening to you, watch what you do, read the environment, make changes, adjust. Don't forget to do that as a continuous process. Having said that, I think we also know from your, from our courses in <laughs> physics back in high school or college that the universe tends to be kind of symmetric. That is, there are, there's matter and antimatter and electrons and positrons <laughs> and so on. That said, that's a little bit uh, of a stretch by way, may, way of making a metaphor there. But do you think on balance that we learn – equally or powerfully, whether we learn from failure or uh, success? Or does one, I don't know, create more indelible lessons than the other? What do you think? Learning from failure versus learning from success? It's a great question. I mean, I think that clearly we need to learn from both. Uh, There's a risk of complacency um, as uh, we have success 
and that we become too set in our ways. I mean, I think in general, you know, what certainly I've seen, you know, experience and, and research would suggest is that when we can learn from failure, it's hard, uh, but it certainly, uh, you know, it does stick with you in a way, right? That, yeah. uh, you know, as we think back, and I'd encourage folks to, you know, think about kind of when they've tried something that's gone wrong and how they came out the other side. You know, those things, you know, are kind of imprinted on our souls because that moment uh, of, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it's abject terror. Um, hopefully, you know, as we, you know, kind of iterate and, and uh, become more accustomed to it, we can take it in stride, um, you know, stands out so starkly to us. Brad, that's great. And maybe to help our listeners appreciate that very point, could you walk us through an example that you've seen, maybe with your cardiac surgeons or you've done research in many different settings, where somebody strikingly learned from a setback, something that is sort of like an A case to make the point. What, What comes to mind on that? Sure. Um, I mean, I I think uh, one of my favorites, and I mentioned him earlier, is um, Tom Crosby. Uh, And so this is the CEO at at PALS. Southern Service is what the chain's called, uh, and this was now a few years ago. Uh, you know, they were exploring rolling out a new product, uh, and as uh, this was a company that makes their money selling hamburgers, French fries, sweet tea, uh, but he saw these broader trends that were taking place uh, that uh, you know customers seemed to want overall some healthier eating. Um, and, you know, as he looked at this, he became convinced that people wanted salads. And so there was a small cadre that said, we need to sell salads. Um, they went through a product development process. And, you know, the data was murky at best, maybe even slightly negative uh, as, they, as they explored this. Eventually, he's convinced they need to roll out salads, um, and say they, so they do it. Um, as it gets into the market, you know, that murkiness you know, clarifies into their customers don't want salads. The only salad that sold even a little bit was the cheeseburger salad. <laughs> um, and you know, at, the, at the end of this process, he steps back and says, okay, we're pulling salads. He gets in front of people. He says, look, I've spent now you know, up to $6 million on my education as CEO, um, but we wouldn't be where we are today. They have uh, higher sales per square foot than an Apple store, uh, as operationally they do some amazing things, getting you through the window in 18 seconds uh, when you pull up. Um, but what he took from that was a redesign of their product development process. So he kind of had ignored these signals that were coming along that were pushing back. And he said, look, you know, we need to have this very rigorous process where store managers are involved, where we have criteria of what it is we're looking for um, as we work through things. And, and so, you know, I, I think there's that point of being honest with ourselves, you know, when we've come out the other side of, of what didn't work, what can we learn that we try knowing full well that, you know, different things are going to break next time. Yeah, last quick wraparound point on, on that. It's, our, it's our, our own commitment to being unflinching as we look at ourselves and what we've done and reading the world for what we achieved or maybe f- fell short in. That said, I think don't we want people around us who can help us appreciate uh, both our successes and our failures all that more. And I say that, <clears throat> Brad, in part in reference to a program that we've long run here <clears throat> with the U.S. Marine Corps in which we take students down to their famous training program, the Officer Candidate School at Quantico, Virginia. And in my own personal experience, I learned enormously from a drill instructor who was quick to point out my failures. <laughs> <clears throat> And I, I knew I'd failed, but the way he pointed him out, and Jeff's about to say, well, 
finally confessing those failures, huh, Mike? <laughs> we actually have the drill sergeant on the line for you right now, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just wanted to point out you yeah. hadn't changed yeah, a few exactly. things. Exactly. <laughs> well, a little follow up. Come on, Mike. I told you a year ago. So, yes. anyway, with all that being said, isn't it a, it's a personal process, but also isn't it a, um, they call it a coaching process? You want people around you who are willing to give you a good, uh, constructive feedback. I'll put it that way. What do you think? Uh, no, I think you're completely right. That you know, I think we <clears throat> often underestimate coaching. Hmm. If we think about, you know, no athletic team would go without coaching, um, and you know, we as professionals all too often fail to to look for that. Um, and I think you're right that if you look at a good coach, yes, they're going to identify the things that are going wrong. They're going to make sure that they're in areas that need fixing. Right? Hmm. If you're to take a World Cup example, if you're the striker, you know, we're not going to work on your goalkeeping ability, so we're going to make sure we play to your strengths. Um, but that coach's role is both the build your skills, but also to motivate you. So we don't want yeah. to be so obsessed with failure, tearing you down yeah. constantly that uh, that we don't get you ready to go and excited about uh, the opportunity. <laughs> Mike, your example uh, brings to my mind the importance of the after-action review and reflection. Yep. And I know that that's a point that you make as well, Brad, in your book. And you've got a great, a great line here where dynamic learn- learners fight the urge to act for the sake of acting and recognize that when the going gets tough, the tough are rested, <laughs> take time to recharge, and stop to think. I, I got to go home. We're <laughs> 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 stopping right that, now. Seriously? Uh, That's it? That's it. I, gotta, I really got to go. <laughs> okay. Hold on. Hold on. You, you, you are not yeah. done yet. <laughs> Lock the door. In now. August. Did you hear that? <laughs> All right, Brad. So how about reflection? I, I, I am someone who uh, really, mm. not that I not that I get the opportunity to do it as much or take the opportunity to do it. But I do think that reflection is really uh, an important piece of this puzzle. I, I think you're completely right. And I think, unfortunately, what we see is that all too often, you know, people discount it, right? Um, that, you know, yet we conceptually, it's kind of important, but that we don't actually, you know, make the time for it. Um, you know, in, in my own case, you know, I did some research in the area. Um, in part because when I had been a practitioner, you know, I, I did a lousy job of reflecting. And so now I was teaching folks, I was standing in front of them, asking them to take time to reflect and felt, um, you know, slightly uh, <laughs> you know, inappropriate asking them to do something I didn't. Um, and so we, we worked in, uh, with a technology company uh, in their training program with a really simple intervention. Uh, we took, uh, it was a six-week program, two weeks in the middle. We randomly assigned people into a reflection condition uh, where 15 minutes at the end of the day, they'd simply write about two lessons they'd learned that day. You know, what were, what were the two things you picked up? Um, that was it. You know, the other group got 15 minutes more training. At the end, they took an exam uh, that uh, they had to pass in order to actually, you know, go on and start doing the job. Uh, and we found that group uh, that reflected performed about 30% higher. Their first month serving customers, they were about 10% higher in terms of customer satisfaction. Um, and it was that simply pausing, mm-hmm. um, thinking about what's going on. Neuroscience shows us that when we do versus when we think or reflect, that we activate different parts of the brain. And so the two really go hand in hand. They're complementary. Um, and so we have to, to fight that urge to kind of constantly be on. Yeah, I, I really, I very much appreciate that. So the moral to that story is that practice doesn't necessarily make us better, but reflection. Yeah, t- 
together, right? So we, we did a lab study separately where we gave people a choice. And what was interesting, 82% of folks chose, we gave them a new task, we trained them, and then we said, hey, do you want to practice? Do you want to reflect? 82% chose to keep practicing, uh, right? That, you know, okay, I'm going to work, 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 work. Um, what we found is that 18% that, that took a few minutes to reflect ended up performing much better as they kind of put the pieces together. How does this work? How might this, you know, lead me to a better location? That's great. Jeff? Another of the topics that you talk about um, w- within, you know, I, I guess, creating the right conditions for learning for the individual is um, the need to really be yourself, right, and to <laughs> to resist um, conformity, I guess, in, in some ways. Yep. Um, you know, what role... What role does that play? Why why is that condition so important from your perspective? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think when we when we step into new can, new new locations, you know, we think about it as okay, how can I fit in? We get really nervous about things uh, often, uh, and so we've done you know as an example of this um, some research around onboarding when you mm-hmm. join a firm. Um, and uh, so what's so interesting is you know typical onboarding we think of it as you know the company tells you what to do, um, you want to fill in, you don't want to be embarrassed. I I went to you know Goldman Sachs out of college, so I show up on Wall Street. You know, I, I don't want to be a sore thumb, stick out like a sore thumb. So I put on my you know, gray pinstripe suit. I wear my red tie, and you know, can I can I act like everybody else? Uh, but of course, the challenge is, you know, at the end of the day, acting like everybody else, you know, at best you're going to be kind of a, a bad imitation of them, right? That we all bring different things to the table, and so getting comfortable enough to to recognize, okay, what is it? What is it that you bring, um, and how might that help you thrive? Um, we did another field experiment, uh, this one with a, with an Indian organization that was experiencing very high turnover, um, and so we decided, well, I wonder if we could activate the individual if that might you know, help people end up in the longer and actually staying at the firm, but performing at higher levels too. Um, and so we had a really simple intervention. Um, we put people into three different conditions, a control that did nothing different, um, a individual condition. So we got an hour on the first day. During that hour, we had a uh, kind of senior leader come in, talk about how you could be yourself at that firm. Um, they thought about when they kind of a personal highlight reel, they introduced themselves to their other orientation group that way, um, and then they left. We gave them a fleece with their name on it, so the individual really stood out. Um, now, since people like free stuff, we needed another organizational condition, and so in that <laughs> one, they got an hour all about how great the company was because it was a very good employer, um, and they got another fleece, but this time it had the company name on it. That's great. And then we sent them on their way and tracked them for six months. Mm-hmm. At the end of that six months, what we found was that individual condition um, had it had stayed at the firm um, at a much higher level, about 25% higher. Um, they performed in the job significantly higher, all from that small day one intervention. Um, and as we've done a bunch of follow-up work, you know, what we've come to appreciate in, in the lab, we've seen this, um, that uh, it's really a story of authentic self-expression. When we can be ourselves, our anxiety goes down, um, which uh, is beneficial for learning. We're more likely to see kind of additional creative opportunities, um, and that kind of sets us up to thrive in the long run. Let me just jump in and remind everyone this is Leadership in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall here with Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem, and we are speaking with Brad Statz, author of Never Stop Learning. Jeff, I think you had a follow-up question. Yeah, the the statement that you made there about the relationship between anxiety and learning. um, (laughs) That's big. Yeah, I mean, it it really, excuse me, it really does feel to me like a lot of the process of, you know, being an educator is, is... helping students 
helping learners um, manage their anxiety as they're going through a learning process. So um, I love this example of, you know, an organization sending a really uh, strong signal, you know, kind of on day one. Um, Have you found other strategies that either organizations or individuals um, can take to help the learner manage anxiety um, and, you know, engage in all the parts of the learning process? Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question, right? And, and I mean, I think, you know, as you're highlighting, you know, the challenge becomes too much anxiety, right? right. And we know kind of York dodson law exists to say, hey, look, a little bit of anxiety can be helpful. It keeps us focused to make sure we don't stay complacent, um, but it very quickly tips over into the problematic area. Um, and I think we see organizations do a number of things. I mean, some of them are as simple as you know, just encouraging people to design their space for learning, right? Um, you know, adding a little bit of color, adding, you know, some pictures that you like, um, bringing in a favorite, you know, little you know, memento from, from your childhood. Um, and so those sorts of little kind of boosts of positive emotion um, can help combat, you know, when you get stressed, you look over and see something that makes you smile. Um, and as small as that, you actually kind of can get a meaningful improvement. Um, I think the other thing that that we see folks doing goes back to your earlier point around coaching and mentoring, Um, creating connection points that happen with, you know, a rhythm um, and frequent rhythm uh, so that, you know, you can talk through what's going on with someone who should, you know, be able to to offer some insight for you that you're not kind of left there to stew, right? If you think, you know, as as a teacher, you know, all of us when, when we're in front of a classroom are looking for kind of signs of, you know, someone's struggling, and then maybe we deal with it real time, um, maybe we follow up afterwards. Um, and so transforming that and bringing that you know, same approach to the organization, uh, I think we see leading, leading firms doing. Brad, we're getting close to the end of the time with, uh, with you on the show here. A quick question about the title of your book, Never Stop Learning. Uh, it's a very strong thesis. The three of us in this room totally subscribe to it. We're in the same business for the same reasons. Having said that, do you think that there are stages in, in, in the arc of life where that never stop learning is more profoundly important than others? For example, is it more critical in your 30s? Or what about your 40s? Uh, or is this something that is really kind of age independent and regardless of age, people ought to hang in there? What do you think? That's a great question. I, I certainly would argue um, that you know it's it's age independent. There's certainly going to be some differences in any moment of time, um, but that you know, I think if we look at great performers, they recognize this need, even if you're in the same role, to continue to learn. Um, I think what's so been so encouraging to me um, in looking through the research is you know we often kind of have this view: oh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Um, and, and what we find in what, you know, whether it's neuroscience, whether it's psychology, whether it's management, um, that, you know what, you, you actually can learn at all stages of life. Um, and it's not a matter of, you know, can you teach the old dog new tricks? It's, it's does that, you know, dog want to want to actually learn. Um, and so, you know, there become moments we have to put our head down, we have to get something done. Um, but overall, um, I think it is this broader building of a portfolio of experiences so we can continue to evolve with this ever-changing world. And a quick question really to the four of us uh, since we're in this business. Uh, since uh, you at North Carolina teach, uh, I'm sure, lots of undergraduates, lots of MBA students. Undergraduates, let's say, they're late teens, 2021. 20, MBA students somewhere in their upper 20s. Executive MBA in their 30s. And then people who come back for these short-term programs that I know you're involved in as well sure. are in their 40s. And I think my observation, just to make it a statement see how people respond, 
is that when people at least end up on our shore, and Brad, probably on your shore as well, uh, they really want to learn regardless <laughs> of age. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, t- I certainly completely mm. agree. I think I, f- I find folks at all of those stages, they're thirsty for an opportunity, which really creates a wonderful win-win for us as educators, but also for organizations. If you create that, um, then you're giving them something they want. Brad, I just really want to thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we'd like to know how listeners can find out more about your book. Absolutely. Uh, So please uh, check it out online uh, at uh, www.bradleystaats.com or also on Twitter at brstaats. Oh, Bradley, thanks again. Thank you so much. Yep, thanks. Appreciate it. All right, Brad, thank you. All right, we have just a moment, just a moment, a minute for reflection, and I'm wondering if anything really surfaces to the top. Jeff? Mike has a lot to learn. (laughs) Uh, I guess that makes me the chief failure officer right there. I've been promoted. Yeah, as as, as your newly... Um, I think the point about anxiety is a really interesting one. It is. Right? And um, I think there is some anxiety which is necessary to promote learning and too much anxiety really can can shut it down completely yeah and so how do we encourage and i think the whole conversation with brad was about that how do you encourage the right level of risk taking and the right level of vulnerability and the right level of authenticity so that you're you're in that proximal zone of development mm-hmm. i think that's a great point mike so uh, my w- one sentence in in effect is that the book really makes the argument to me that we underappreciate the the importance and the value of rethinking what you're doing continuously. Mm -hmm. And if we can get a bit better about that, Mm -hmm. we can get a lot more done. Very good. And it's a lifelong process. Is it ever? (laughs) Very good. Well, I want to thank all of you out there for joining us tonight. If you have a question about something you've heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to uh, follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. So once again, a special thanks to our guest, Brad Statz. And I'd also like to thank our producer tonight is Michelle out there and our engineer, Jeff. And of course, I want to thank Jeff Klein, our co-host, Mike Useem, co-host. I'm Ann Greenhall. You've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Join us again. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 